Hi everyone and welcome to this episode of the PBM podcast. I'm your host Robbie Lockie. Today I'm really overjoyed to introduce you to the wonderful Dr. Gemma Newman. Dr. Newman has worked as a doctor, a public speaker and a plant-based advocate since 2004 and is the senior partner at the Orchard Surgery. She studied at the University of Wales College of Medicine and has worked in many specialties as a doctor including elderly care, endocrinology, pediatrics, obstetrics and gynecology, psychiatry, psychiatry, general surgery, urology, vascular surgery, rehabilitation medicine and general practice. She gained additional qualifications in gynecology and family planning and she has a specialist interest in plant-based nutrition and gives nutrition and lifestyle advice to her patients who have gained tremendous results using the power of their plate. As a broadcaster and writer, she's been featured on television, including ITV, Channel 4, Channel 5, and Sky News Sunrise. She's contributed to articles for magazines, including Glamour, Zest, Good Housekeeping, and of course, has been featured on Plant-Based News too. Her family lead a fully plant-based lifestyle, following extensive research she's done on the scientific literature on the health benefits associated with the whole food plant-based diet. Welcome, Dr. Gemma. Thank you so much, Robbie. <laughs> That was, a, that was a great intro, and then there's a lot of ologies there. <laughs> That's great. So much wisdom in one person. Oh, I don't know about that. I try. <laughs> so before we go into your medical history and how you got involved um, in, in everything that you're doing right now, uh, I'd like to ask our guests, how did you discover the plant-based and vegan lifestyle? Where did it all begin? Well, for me, it began through um, my nearest and dearest, so my husband was running for the London Marathon and he kept on getting injured and inflamed. And so he decided to do some research to see if the things that he were eating were contributing to the problem. And so he introduced me to the books of um, ultra runners and uh, triathletes, things like uh, Brendan Brazier, Rich Roll, Scott Jurek, Born to Run. And I very quickly realized that when I read these books, they had a lot in common. They were all eating whole food plant-based diets and in so doing they were dramatically reducing their recovery times and they were also improving their athletic performance so I let him give it a go not that he was um he was pretty convinced himself he was going to do it whether I let him or not but I thought well let's see how it goes um a bit nervous because I didn't know if it was actually going to be good for him you know all the things that you read in the media would suggest that um, there may be problems with it. But I thought, no, let's try it out. And he did incredibly well. He improved his marathon running time by one hour and 10 minutes, which is absolutely unbelievable. Wow, that's incredible. I know. I, I was completely stunned. Um, and so that really prompted me to continue my learning journey. And I kept reading the literature, the medical literature on nutrition and general wellness and lifestyle. And what I began to realize is that there's a tremendous amount of evidence dating back you know, to the 1920s up to the current day, which does show us that, in fact, having a predominantly whole food plant-based diet is tremendously good for health and can potentially reverse um, and certainly slow down many of the chronic diseases that we now suffer from. So that got me hooked. And then I just keep learning and I keep growing every day. I can't say that I know every single thing that there is to know because because we don't as a scientific community there's much more that we still yet to uncover but from everything that i've so far found the evidence is overwhelming that a whole food plant-based diet is definitely the way forwards 
And when it comes to the whole food plant-based diet, obviously, you know, as, uh, you know, Plant-Based News is a vegan organization, we advocate for animal rights and ethics. As a doctor, you know, you're obviously, obviously essentially a scientist. We've talked about this before in the last few weeks about ethics and morality. Um, you can, Do you consider yourself a vegan? I do. I think that my instinct in going into medicine was compassion. That was the main driver for me. It always has been and it always will be. I I want to connect with people. I want to understand what makes them tick. I want to understand their inner struggles and their inner pain because for me that's really the, the root cause of a lot of medical problems. I've seen it in my practice. Um, I've been a GP for a long time now and you know, social disparity and despair and loneliness, um, stress, these are all main drivers for disease and they're not easy to overcome. Um, but what I've found is that in using nutrition, it's almost like a Trojan horse, really. It's, it's a way of helping people to understand that the things that they do to themselves and that the things that they put inside their bodies can also have a dramatic effect on the other aspects of their life and then might nudge them in a more healthy direction. So, Compassion was always the key. And I think, you know, it is it is the caring profession. And when I understood more about how um, the animals that are put on our plate get there, then, of course, that led me to feeling less likely to want to eat those things. And in terms of planetary health as well, uh, if you look at healthcare, it's not just about the individual in front of you. It's about the future of healthcare. And what I see is in some ways quite bleak, but I'm hopeful that the younger generation understand that having a more plant-based diet is actually so important for planetary health as well, because as you well know, the animal agriculture industry is the main driver of species extinction and landmass degradation and ocean dead zones. And so yeah, the decision to put that steak on the plate or put that piece of fish on the plate has a tremendous impact down the line on our children's chances of actually living a healthy lifestyle. And even today, you've got risk of uh, increased risk of certain diseases that um, are caused by antibiotic resistance and animal agriculture is the leading cause of antibiotic resistance in humans. And you know, this is a very real dangers for human health. You know, we may not be able to do routine surgeries in the future because we won't be able to mitigate the risk of infection. So you know, there are so many levels on which this seems to be the, the optimal way forward and compassion for me is the key. Mm, absolutely. And I think you touched on a great point there about the medical profession and compassion. At the very cornerstone of what the vegan movement stands for is compassion, compassion for all life. So for me personally, it makes it makes total sense that to be a doctor and to you, to exist as a compassionate being, uh, veganism is incredibly compatible with being a doctor and that it shouldn't uh, stand in the way of being a good doctor as well because being um, empathic and compassionate towards your patients uh, really can easily be um, applied to people, non-human animals. So you just widen your circle of compassion, which I think you've mentioned that phrase before. Yes, <laughs> um, I have. Exactly, yeah. I have. And I th I'm so pleased to hear you say that, Robbie, because I think a lot of the time people say that if you if you have a, an ethical standpoint, then it can sometimes cause you to be biased in terms of your um, looking at the research and how things work. And I would argue, as you say, widening the circle of compassion is 
it's not mutually exclusive to um, uh, being you know, a good doctor. I think that, that they have to go hand in hand. And in order for somebody to have to realign their um, their research, uh, for someone to have to change the habits that they've had for a lifetime, um, then that takes a lot more uh, self-reflection than somebody who looks at the research in a very superficial way and just says, oh, well, I've always done something, so I will continue to do so. I think changing your dietary habits and changing your outlook based on the research is actually a a harder thing to do, I would say. Mm. So speaking of being a doctor, uh, when when did you decide and how did you decide that you wanted to become a doctor? Oh, my goodness. Well... I, as a young child, I, I was, I was compassionate, I would say. Um, my father had major mental health problems. Um, and, um, he had to go through all sorts of things, electroconvulsive therapy, lots of different strong medications. He was admitted into psychiatric hospitals several times and he, he, he lived a life that was not not how you'd want it to be you know his mental health really impacted every aspect of his life and early on i could see that that he was in pain but there wasn't really much i could do about it and i suppose in a sense that did fuel my desire to want to help others um where i hadn't been able to help him um i think uh, i came from a family where we didn't have that much money growing up as well we were um my mum cooked great foods but we didn't go on holidays we didn't have um, any real spare cash and she used to worry a lot about where the next meal was coming from and I never wanted to be in a position where I had to rely on anybody else and um, I wanted to be able to have a secure income but also be able to fuel my um, compassion for helping people and of course the most obvious thing that came to mind was the medical profession um my father's mother was a doctor as well, which was really interesting to me because back then, you know, in the 1920s, she was born in 1920 and she went to medical school in the 1940s. Wow, that's incredible. It's unbelievable. I think she, because she was a woman, she wasn't actually allowed to go to the graduation ceremony as far as I can recall her telling me. Wow. Um, but she managed to do all the uh, all of the components and she passed the course. And to, to me, that was incredibly inspiring and I wanted to do something that was also similarly inspiring and, and helpful to others. Um, and so, yeah, I thought there's, there's, a, there's a multitude of reasons, but I think probably, as I said before, it stems from wanting to help. And, you know, with my, with my mum as well, I, I tended to be more of a confidant, I would say, than, than the traditional um, mother-daughter role. Mm-hmm. And so that was my role in life for a long time. And it's ironic that I chose a role in my working profession where I, I get to sit down and listen to people telling me their problems every 10 minutes all day, every day. (laughs) (laughs) I can sympathize with that because my mother also had a lot of, um, my mother had a lot of health problems growing up. And I've like you also come from a a family of doctors as well. And if actually, if I hadn't got involved in technology, I would have probably become a doctor of some sort. Um, Because I'm a a lot like you in the sense that um, I'm very good at diagnostic um, analysis so I can I like to look at information or but look at like the puzzle or the, or the pattern um, you strike me as someone who's probably able to recognize patterns in behavior or physical symptoms and then probably pull something from a large source of information in your head yeah, well, <laughs> possibly yeah, I, I photographic do. memory <laughs> 
Well, I wouldn't go that far, but I do think that being a GP is is very interesting in that regard because you have to piece a lot of different pieces of the puzzle together, yeah. and and you're absolutely right. You know, people are people are pretty complex, and there's never just one thing. Uh, no. And looking at someone holistically is crucial to understanding how they're able to make change in their lives because if you go into a specific subspecialty then naturally you're going to know more about that topic but sometimes that myopic view is very difficult to mm. to, to, to really align with 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 uh, long-term health outcomes um and the reductionist sort of approach of, of the scientific community is important because otherwise we wouldn't have things like randomized control trials and um, we wouldn't have the ability to to be more objective in terms of how things have an impact on the body but at the same time that kind of specific reductionist approach is not really how humans work so that's why i love being a gp because you have to piece it all together <laughs> yeah the puzzle well when it came to your studies um everyone knows that becoming a doctor is incredibly challenging what were some of the the key challenges you faced in your studies Oh my goodness. Well, there was just a huge amount of volume to learn. I mean, there were years of, uh, to me, I mean, I, I studied in Wales. My my main degree was at Cardiff University or the University of Wales College of Medicine, which is now Cardiff University. And um, the intermediates were always the, the ones that people feared. You know, there was folklore around how horrific these exams were and people would drop out and have to leave the course. And my good friend and flatmate developed a horrific um, underarm abscess during that time. Um, people you know having to go into hospital getting dehydrated having IV drips I mean it was ridiculous the amount of stress that we were under at that time um, I remember having 13 exams in one um, five-day period um, and it was just yeah <laughs> if you'd known what was coming would you have done it <laughs> um Yes, I'm just, yeah, I think I would. <laughs> because it's interesting. I think you could make it less stressful for sure. But I also think that a lot of things in life that are worth having are hard work. And Yes, yeah. Nothing we, good ever came easy to, to anyone. Well, that's true. I think it's true. Things take Things that you really want or things that you want to bring more of into your life often require a lot of work. Um, it doesn't have to be that stressful. <laughs> But yeah, I think I still would have done it. <laughs> and when it comes to obviously studying to be a doctor, there's a lot of things that we now know are missing from uh, medical studies, for example, nutrition. Um, but what are the, some of the things that you wish that you'd learnt at medical school that you know now? I would definitely have loved to have more nutrition in the in the uh, program. I would have loved a bit more of the epidemiology of health, the history of medicine, because I think it gives people a great context about where we, you know, where we've come from, where we're going to. Um, the the course is tremendously broad, and I would say a lot of the time doctors tend to leave nutrition to dietitians and um, nutritionists because we've had a lot of other things that we needed to learn about, but unfortunately. I think that does a disservice to our patients because, especially in the land of GP, we are tremendously well placed to put um, nuggets of information in people's minds that could potentially change future health outcomes. So for me, nutrition is definitely number one. Um, I would also like to have had a little bit more training on the psychology of illness because um, I think, again, in general practice, many GPs feel overwhelmed because there's a huge amount of people highly stressed, highly depressed, highly lonely, and we're not able to fix those kinds of problems in a short 10-minute consultation. But I think if we'd had more training in 
you know, the psychology of illness, the psychology of wellness and, and, and in nutrition, it would have been really useful. Um, having said that, there is a lot that we needed to learn. And much like a gastroenterologist doesn't learn to do colonoscopies at medical school, I think there is also a, a role for continuing the, um, the education postgraduate. Um, so I also go and teach at GP training schemes about nutrition because that is part and parcel of, of um, the postgraduate training. So, and I think things are changing. Um, there are lots of, there are lots of medical schools now that are taking nutrition on board and you've got doctors like the doctor's kitchen, um, Rupee, um, and you've got um, Dr. Shireen Kassam. She's the fa- founder of plant-based health professionals. She's now a professor at Winchester university. She's putting together a nutrition course there. I think things are changing, but it's taking too long. <laughs> so I took it into my own hands. Yeah. Why are things so slow, though? Is it is it just because of lack of funds? There seems to be like a real reluctance in the medical community to change things. Is it just because, you know, it's such an old and established uh, profession? Uh, do you find that it's just a case that people are really reluctant to take on new information because it requires that scientific mind so people are like well we don't know we don't have time to sit down and look at all the research so we can't just take this on face value <laughs> i think there's loads of reasons why it's not not more obviously done i think number one would be because as you say things are very slow it's t- i mean there's thousands of studies proving that cigarette smoking is harmful but it took many many years for that to get into the curriculum um and in fact there are no randomized doctors used to recommend smoking didn't they at one point yes they did back in the 1950s and there was a lot of controversy around doctors saying actually we shouldn't smoke and in fact there's been no randomized controlled trials proving that smoking is bad for us but there have been over 7,000 studies to show that that there are definite correlative risks and so it, it took a very long time to change people's minds and so I think that's that's one factor. Another factor is you know, um, university funding is tight and you have to make sure that you're not um, putting in things that are going to potentially be detrimental to funding. Um, there's a lot of funding from pharmaceutical industries and also food industries, which can sometimes skew research. Uh, there's personal bias. Uh, there's, there's overwhelm with work. So in terms of doctors, I think many doctors don't want to learn about it because they're already feeling as though they've got too much on their plate, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's mm-hmm. not something that they want to add to their workload. Um, multitude of factors. Uh, yeah. It just seems so obvious, though, because, you know, as the old adage goes, we are what we eat. But then I hear time and time again, people say things from doctors that have said, oh, it's nothing to do with what you're eating. It's nothing to do with what you're putting in your mouth. I just don't understand how people can't make the connection between the fuel and the minerals and the substances that we consume because our bodies are literally made from the things that we eat. Every single thing we stick in our mouth, our body recycles it, but it breaks it down and turns it into substances that we can then use to build our cells and our skeleton and our brains and everything. You know, if it may, it makes total sense. It's not, it's not, doesn't not rocket science to think that if you eat bad food, (laughs) <laughs> you can have ill health why do you I think agree. it's so hard for people to make this connection <laughs> even doctors well i think most doctors now i'm hoping would say that they understand that your diet does play some part in your health i hope i hope that most doctors would say that now um but um yeah, I think that there's a lot of other factors as well that we need to look at, which we've discussed briefly before. It's it's nutrition, it's sleep, it's stress, it's exercise. Um, 
it's spiritual health um, or you know mental health. So yes, I agree. What you're putting in really does dictate what you get out. And when you put in things that are harmful, when you put in uh, factory farmed meats, when you put in processed sugars, when you put in excess saturated fats, excess animal proteins, when you're putting in excess um, uh, oils, uh, junk foods, yeah, you're going to be facing, unfortunately, negative consequences compared to when you're putting in whole fresh fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, chickpeas, lentils, beans, herbs, spices, oats, you know, those are the foods that keep us the most well. So that's a whole food plant-based diet that you've talked on there. For the listeners who may not be aware, would you explain the difference between like a standard vegan diet, which can be anything, could include Oreos and ice cream, (laughs) and a whole food plant-based diet and what's the difference and why one is better than the other? Well, yeah, as you said, um, if you're vegan, it's more of a, a lifestyle of compassion or it's because you're caring about the environment so in a in a sense you're not really thinking as so much about your own health and so you could pretty much eat anything that was a a non-animal product which would as you've rightly said include things like oreos and ice cream and uh fake meats uh, like a high proportion of fake meats and um junk food processed food um whereas if you're eating a whole food plant-based diet you're really minimizing your animal products it's it's a little bit tricky because some people say whole food plant-based to mean 100% whole food plant-based they wouldn't have any animal products others take it to mean that they'll have mostly whole food plant-based products and some animal products so there is a bit of confusion around that for people but when I refer to whole food plant-based I mean that you're essentially having a healthy vegan diet so you're um, you're relying on things like the vegetables the fruits the whole grains the beans and you're not relying on processed foods that you get in packages uh, that you that, that have been prepared in in um, in the factories and you're you're just eating fresh and ideally sort of seasonally locally but yeah fresh fruits and vegetables and whole grains and beans and things like that but what's wrong with eating like ice cream and biscuits and chocolate? Like, why can't we just live on these things? They're incredibly high in calories. So what happens to our body when we just sort of eat, if we just ate like cookies and crisps and uh, ice cream every day, like, you know, that's this, this fats and carbs and sugars and those things. Well, why does our body respond badly to these kinds of things? There's loads of reasons why. So if you've got something like um, crisps, uh, you've got the the oils that you're cooking the potatoes in, uh, they've got, uh, they cause inflammation in the body. You've got um, a higher proportion of omega-6 fatty acids in these kinds of oils, which are also uh, promoting inflammation and oxidative stress in the body. You've got the um, harms of having oils that are hot, that are cooked at high temperatures which can also increase the amount of free radicals that we form i mean people bandy around these terms but actually what's happening is when you when you're digesting foods uh, your body makes these little extra oxygen particles that bounce around inside the cells and they're called free radicals and you need it's about balance you don't want too many of those hanging around because they can damage the cell and they can age your body Uh, so that's why when you have things like fruits and vegetables they contain so-called antioxidants and they mop up these these crazy wild oxygen species they kind of eat them all up and then you don't have so much inflammation in the body and you're able to produce something called nitrous oxide in your blood vessels which allows them to become nice and stretchy and supple um, and uh, promotes much better health reduced inflammation and less stiffening of the blood vessels and so 
when you're having fresh foods like fruits and vegetables, they help you to produce this amazing nitrous oxide, which opens up those endothelial linings of the cells and makes you far healthier. Whereas if you eat foods that contain all of these extra cooked oils and saturated fats, they have the opposite effect. They stiffen the arteries and they block nitrous oxide production and they they make you unwell in the long term. So uh, even with vegan ice cream, so you've got stuff like um, the extra fats essentially that's driving that. Um, and when you've got things like biscuits and cakes, you've got the double whammy of the excess sugar that's refined, as well as the excess flour that's refined, as well as the fat. And it's like a it's like a bomb of nastiness inside the body. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah we, class and I went had the joy of going to meet Dr. Esselstyn and um, in in uh, North America, and him he he talked about how like certain refined foods are a bit like a nutrient bomb. So take like clarified apple juice for example you know if you had uh, an apple a fresh apple most humans could probably only eat a maximum of like maybe four or five apples at a max you know if you drink like a liter of clarified apple juice there could be 20 or 30 apples in there and that kind of you know bomb of fructose whacking into your body you know that's a really unnatural state for your body to be in to be having that level of uh, nutrient all simultaneously and he was explaining how you know it has a very, very similar effect as well to the um, clarified and refined oils as well, how it actually reduces artery function. And they've done tests with athletes where they've consumed large quantities of refined clarified uh, fruit juices and how it actually reduces artery function as well, very similar to the way um, the oils do. Because it goes into your gut, doesn't it, some of these substances, and it creates the substance, I can never remember the acronym, T-A-M-O, T. TMAO, yeah, trimethylamine oxide, yeah. So that's that's slightly different. That, that TMAO is is you're absolutely right. It's it's very a lot of it's mediated through the gut microbiome, um, and TMAO is actually is actually produced by the liver, um, uh-huh. but it's in response to TMA trimethylamine, which is produced by our gut bacteria, and um, our gut bacteria make this toxin um, from carnitine and choline from our predominantly from our diet, really. So Carnitine is mostly carne, mostly from meat products, eggs, um, and um, cheese and dairy, and, um, and choline, especially in eggs. Uh, but but yeah, um, when you eat things with high levels of carnitine and choline, then your gut bacteria are going to attempt to digest. And when they do, they produce TMA, which then goes to the liver, makes TMAO, which is a nasty toxin, which is associated with increased risk of heart disease, uh, heart failure, kidney disease. Um, yeah, so it's, it's not a good thing. And um, Yeah, because it's altering your body chemistry, isn't it? I yeah. mean, the gut is so fascinating. I've been reading and learning a lot over the years about how, you know, for example, and this is probably a whole other podcast, about how we're now calling the gut the second brain and how it produces a huge quantities of serotonin, which help balance and elevate mood. Um, it's amazing, I know. Do you want to touch a little bit on the gut importance of like a healthy gut flora and how like what we eat, as you just said, can actually alter um, a lot of aspects of who we are, our mood, um, our energy levels? It can affect so much. And it is a fascinating area which has become tremendously popular in the last few years. And there's, there's a huge connection between the gut and the brain. You've got a communication that goes two ways uh, you've got the inflammatory cytokines that send messages up to the brain uh, you've got the 80 percent of the immune cells of our body are in the gut and so 
We've also got the, this, the vagus nerve, which runs directly between the gut and the brain. So there's tremendous amount of, of, of pathways to sh- that the, the gut uses to communicate with the brain. And, you know, if you have a gut feeling about something, then in a sense, you can use the, um, the data that we're getting in now to kind of explain some of that and how many people, you know, when they have a, a gut reaction or when they have um, loose motions, if they're really um, nervous or stressed or they're getting irritable bowel syndrome, it's a lot to do with the fact that the gut and the brain are so intimately collect- connected. And there's a, there's, a, there's a cell lining, which is only about one layer thick, which, which separates the outside world from the inside world and the gut wall. And that is a very important barrier and when you have a whole food plant-based diet which is rich in fiber what you're doing is it's not just bulk um, you're actually feeding beneficial gut microbes and these these are the ones that live at the bottom of the gut and um What's incredible is that when you feed them right, then they do right by you and they create, as you say, they, they start to create vitamins, they create hormones and um, serotonin, as you've pointed out, which is a neurotransmitter, which is so important for mood regulation and also sleep regulation. You know, most of it's made by our gut bugs. And so... It is. It's it's unbelievable, really. So if you think, you know, we're more bacteria than we are human, aren't we? That's the irony. Our cells um, create number of humans. (laughs) Yeah, well, we have more bacterial DNA. Not technically the amount of cells, but um, we we, there's more there's more bacterial DNA for sure. Um, And it it does it not by weight, obviously. We're not some of us maybe, but yeah, yeah. no, but it, it is absolutely fascinating, and and. So the TMAA issue, a TMAO issue, that's, uh, they, there was a study, which I think a lot of people know about now, where they, they aimed to feed a vegan a steak and to see what happened. And they didn't actually produce TMAO because they hadn't cultivated the gut bacteria that were needed to, to, to make the, um, the TMA. So uh, gut bacteria colonies vary widely depending on diet and having um unfortunately in the west we have a major fiber deficiency and we have far too much in the way of um sort of protein foods and uh, refined carbohydrate foods and processed foods uh, and if we had more fiber then we would really have a much more healthy gut microbiome which would improve our mood which would improve our sleep patterns which would improve our digestion our, our risk of all sorts of diseases so it's a really amazing area of research and i'm completely fascinated by it just as much as you i think <laughs> no it's brilliant i think you know sometimes i feel like we're these beings walking around totally at the mercy of our gut bacteria like the gut bacteria is controlling us i have this like yeah. weird sci-fi theory that you walk around the supermarket and you're putting food in your shopping bag you think that you're making those choices when in fact it's actually the bacteria that are like the zombie zombies inside you. you're right no you're, you're robbie you're so right this is it i mean this is why i say to people this where do we you know where do they think our cravings come from it's not even necessarily just what we think we want to eat it's what our gut bacteria are telling us that they want in order to survive and so if you're if you're moving towards a more healthy plant-based diet especially at first your gut microbes will not be happy because you'll be having microbes there that are used to um, the, the putrefaction of the of the of the meat products. You're going to be having um, you know, different species of, of bacteria. You've got the Probotella and the Bacteroides species, and they're all going to be making these big shifts around. And so, mm. yeah, your 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 brain's telling you something, but is it really you? <laughs> yeah, because um, they, as you said, and as you've explained, the gut has a direct connection to the brain, and yeah. it's you know it's a bit like a telephone. You know, it's a bit like you know HR calling the head office saying, <laughs> "You need to make <laughs> some changes around here. We're not happy." The 
stuff are, are like in revolting. We need to like get some more meat in there. Um, you know, and it's, it's interesting how like talking about meat and like cravings. So there seems to be not a resurgence, but especially within our sort of circles um, on, on social media, there's been a few people, prominent vegans who've um and we won't we're not mentioning any names because this isn't about like criticizing people but there is a, a shift towards um eating um, more animal pro- going back to eating animal products again but what seems to be common amongst all these people is gut problems uh digestive pain bloating um issues with um you know going to the t- passing passing you know going to the toilet passing urine all kinds of different things when it comes to the gut bacteria, like a lot of people, when they first take, go and take on a plant-based diet, they feel amazing. But there are some people that seem to not be able to tolerate the levels of fiber. Now, is it the case that just some people can't tolerate a plant-based diet? Or is it the case that their bacteria, that something is wrong with their gut and that it could potentially be healed? Yeah, so I think... Um some people get quite a lot of bloating to start with, and I think that's a lot to do with the microbial population. You, you, your gut microbes have got to get used to having more plant-based sources of, of food. So your beans, your lentils, your chickpeas, and um, your fresh fruits and vegetables, they can all cause a reaction in the gut if your gut is already um, compromised. So some people have so-called leaky gut uh, where the tight junctions of the gut are not working very well and they are reacting to certain food types that they ideally wouldn't be reacting to and in fact food types that are otherwise very healthy and I suspect that the people who do well on a short-term meat heavy diet um, do, do so because number one they're cutting out food groups that they were reacting to previously um, and number two they've probably got a lot of gut issues that need to be resolved and my worry is that if you continue with that kind of a diet you're not really resolving the underlying gut issues because you are producing more harmful gut bacteria in the long term so yeah I think some people I would say who do struggle to start with I would say take it slowly and very gradually increase the amount of um of uh, chickpeas lentils and beans that you're eating there's um there's an interesting diet called the FODMAP diet and what that does is it um it, it minimizes the fructose oligosaccharides that 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 cause bloating and in the short term it helps people with IBS but you're actually having to exclude a lot of really healthy foods uh foods that that that, that cause us to be um have reduced um health risks in the long term and it's never it was never designed to be a long-term diet and so if you're one of those people that is struggling with um, a more plant-based approach because of the gastrointestinal symptoms that you're getting, I'd say it's worth looking at things like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So sometimes your gut bacteria migrate to places where they shouldn't be and they start to digest the food too early. So if you imagine all these beneficial gut bugs are residing lower down in the intestines, and then you're giving them all of these foods that that um, that your gut microbes need to digest, but they're further up in the small intestine. They start digesting it really early. You start to get belching, bloating, and um, other issues. And what you really need to do is to is to sort out those gut microbes um, by very gradually reintroducing these foods, and also by potentially doing a um, a plant based FODMAP plan with the help of a dietitian or a nutritionist. Um, so that you can ease yourself into it uh, and see how you go. But no, it is an interesting area. And there's loads of things that can cause breakdown of these um, tight junctions of the gut. And one of the, the main things that, that come off the top of my head is, is the fact that we you know we, we all take quite a lot of antibiotics. Um, 
either through our food or through illness and um, pesticides as well. They are known to disrupt these tight junctions of the gut. And we take those in when we have, um, well, a lot of the foods that we eat, unfortunately, um, non-organic foods and certain types of um, corn and wheat and soy products from, from, from breads. Um, yeah, they, they can disrupt the tight junctions as well. So it's, it's a big picture thing. There's never just one thing. And when it comes to, you know, making these changes from plant-based diet and going back to eating animal products again, a lot of people say, oh, but, you know, I have to do this because my doctor's told me that if I don't go back to eating animal products again, um, I'm going to become incredibly ill. I can't digest this. I can't digest that. I'm really struggling, um, you know, and then I've had conversations with people say, well, you can't get vitamin K and you can't convert enough EPA into DHA and you know it's just not possible I mean what do you say to people that are concerned about all these micronutrients that they allegedly can't get from the plant kingdom I think that in the modern world we all suffer from a nutrient depleted environment um, so the soils that we grow our fruits and vegetables in are not what they used to be uh, the pesticides that we use to grow our fruits and vegetables mean that the amount of nutrients within them are not what they used to be if you have a whole food plant-based diet, you're actually far more likely to have uh, replete nutrients in certain things like magnesium and folate and vitamin C. You know, there's a tremendous amount of nutrients that you're more likely to get on a whole food plant-based diet. Um, if you look at USDA data on intake and you correlate that with micronutrient profiles, it's interesting because you see a nutritarian approach, one that uh, coined by Dr. Joel Furman, that's like number one on the list in terms of the amount of beneficial micronutrients that you get. Um, then you've got you know whole food plant-based, general plant-based patterns of eating. I think number four or five, you've got the public health collaboration diet, which is a lot more to do with um, plant slant but also having things like grass-fed beef and um you know organic eggs and organic meats um but what's interesting to me is that with that diet it doesn't seem to have quite the same amount of nutrients in but it is still very high in nutrients however it's very expensive and it's very i would say quite an elitist way of eating because most people are not able to go to the organic butchers and get their very best grass-fed beef and things like that so I'd say there's a number of reasons why I wouldn't recommend doing that for the mo for most people because it's just not attainable. Whereas with a plant based diet, you are going to fairly easily be able to get most of those nutrients if you're eating beans and rice and the and the kind of humble diet that most of the developing world um, has thrived upon. So, yeah, I think the issue of nutrients is a complicated one, and I think that certain supplements are useful on a whole food plant based diet, but that doesn't speak to the deficiencies on a whole food plant-based diet it rather speaks to the deficiencies that we all suffer from in the western world so take for example b12 b12 as hopefully everybody knows is an important nutrient that we should supplement on a whole food plant-based diet because it's made by microbes in the soil and unless you're eating animals that have eaten those microbes in the soil or you eat those microbes yourself either through you know un unwashed water or unwashed fruits and vegetables untreated water you're not going to necessarily get enough unless you supplement um, or you have supplemented foods like you know, mar uh, marmite and nutritional yeast and fortified nut milks and things like that but I would still recommend supplementing, even if you're having those supplemented foods, just to be on the safe side because it is such an important vitamin. 
And many meat eaters are vitamin B12 deficient. Everybody over the age of 50, pretty much, or anyone, you know, on a proton pump inhibitor, which is an antacid medication, anybody diabetic taking metformin. There are so many B12 deficient adults in the UK. Most of the people with B12 deficiency are, in fact, meat eaters. Um, so, again, it, it, it's, it's not just... The, the diet per se it's it's looking at where we get our food from how well we absorb our food um you mentioned absorption is a big thing isn't it it is exactly and you mentioned vitamin k um there's two i mean there's there's, there's two types of vitamin k you've got vitamin k1 vitamin k2 and then vitamin k2 has 12 different subsets and where do we get vitamin k from well vitamin k1 comes from green leafy vegetables so if you're having a lot of green leafy vegetables you're going to get a lot of vitamin k1 most of us convert k1 to k2 very well um and most of the types of k2 are made by microbes again you've got your microbes predominantly in the gut so it's all coming back to gut health again um, if you have a healthy gut with healthy microbes, there's no reason why you wouldn't make enough vitamin K2 specifically. Um, but if you want to optimize your chances of making enough K2 with a whole food plant-based diet, then you can actually get it from fermented foods. So things like kimchi and sauerkraut and plant-based kefir and um, natto. Natto is the number one source of K2. And it's um, a fermented it's a it's a it's a fermented soybean product they tend uh -huh. to have a lot of it in the far east and it is the number one source of vitamin k2 um but yeah it's it's not that easy to come across and it's it's an acquired taste <laughs> but it's possible it's possible to have it through that so yeah bottom line is on a whole food plant-based diet, most people don't have any issues with vitamin K. But if you want to make sure you're optimizing your vitamin K, have lots of green leafy vegetables, and you could always um, increase your fermented foods. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Now, just going back to kind of eating meat again, um, there seems to be this insane craze sweeping the sweeping the uh, the world this carnivore diet which a few kind of prominent uh, influences have been speaking about where people consume really only animal flesh what kind of things are people doing to their health when they're eating just animal flesh and nothing else oh that's a that's a good question um i i i really worry for these people if i'm if i'm honest with you i i, I do feel for them i think they've obviously had they've obviously had health issues to decide that this is the way to go. And I think if they're, I don't, I'm not, I'm not somebody that wants to deny someone's personal experience. So somebody says to me, I feel so much better on this diet. Um, then I'm going to say, that's great. I'm glad that you do. And I'm going to want to try and unpick why that might be. And I would say that in my opinion, based on what I've read so far, it seems to be that people who do well initially on a carnivore diet are ones that probably have quite a damaged gut, unfortunately. So if you're if you're somebody that's reacting badly to simple fruits and vegetables um, and you're taking out a lot of the things that could aggravate the gut lining, um, then you you might immediately feel a little bit better. But in order to live that way, that's, that's going to be very tricky for long-term health. I can't imagine the issues that people will get with things like constipation, um, bad breath and then you've got the excess depending on where they get their food from you've got the excess um pesticides antibiotics you've got heme iron in excess which is also a cause of inflammation you've got the tmao production that we talked about that you'll start to get with if you're having solely meat you've got the you've got the cancer causing carcinogens when you cook the meat um 
you've got the heterocyclic amines, you've got the uh, what they do in, inside the body, you know, you've got uh, new 5GC, which is another compound which is found in meat and has been shown to contribute towards long-term risk of disease. There's, there's an almost endless risk of potential downsides. Um, the fact that we're able to survive on meat shows that there are good nutrients within certain forms of meat um, that I can't deny. You know, it, it is a it is a good source of, of iron, although we've got the excess inflammation associated with the heme iron. Um, and it is a good source of certain minerals. If you get quality meats, you've got the, the vitamin K2, as you've mentioned. But there are so many downsides. Um, and, you know, Study after study shows that excess animal proteins, excess leucine, excess methionine is associated with increased cancer risk, is increased cellular aging. Um, and you've got epidemiological studies to show that people who have a high, a higher amount of, of um, meat and a lower amount of natural carbohydrates also suffer in the long term from chronic diseases. So I would, I would worry, I would say, in the long term if somebody was doing this um, What's interesting is I know that there's quite a famous guy that, that eats this way. Um, who is Jordan a, Peterson, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I, I don't know of him, but I, I'm talking about a guy called Sean Baker. He's an orthopedic oh, yes. surgeon, and he's been a proponent of this for a little while now. And he was refusing initially to get his blood panel done. He didn't want to get any blood tests to see how he was doing because he felt so great and he was a muscly man. Um, but in the end, he bowed down to pressure. and He did get some blood tests done. And I, I listened to a podcast with him talking about his blood test results. And what's interesting is he was really, really trying to justify some of the abnormalities that came up. Um, mm. Most notably, he had a low testosterone level, despite the fact that he was a big, bulky bodybuilder. Um, and he was also in the pre-diabetic range. Uh, and there is a lot of evidence now to show that if you're having um, a lot of animal protein, you actually increase your risk of diabetes, not reduce it. So somebody eating solely animal products, you'd think that they'd have a completely low risk of diabetes because they would be producing hardly any insulin. There's no uh, dietary sugars rushing around the bloodstream. But he proved um, in his case study there that that he had a pre-diabetic condition. And there's loads of research to show that, unfortunately, saturated fats and animal proteins have both been linked to an increased risk of diabetes. Yeah, you're putting yourself under a lot of risk by doing this. I think um, I think any forms of extreme when it comes to diets, I think, uh, can be damaging, can't they? And it's really important for us to find that balance because, you know, they, ethics aside, there are lots of people in this world who are incredibly healthy who eat mostly plants with small amounts of animal protein. I think that you know, if we keep if we take ethics out of the conversation and take the vegan connection out of the conversation, there are people who are eating, you know, diets that are like mostly plants and kind of have the occasional bit of animal products and i think that when we're eating these lean meats or we're eating these um some people eat an egg but they don't eat the egg yolk they eat the egg white so there are different risk factors aren't there when it comes to eating certain parts of animals and and not others um but obviously as a vegan and plant-based kind of advocacy kind of collective we want to encourage people to stick with with plant plants um because we you know we all believe that it's healthier better for us better for the planet obviously better for the animals um just going back again to sort of meat there's the, the keto craze which you've talked about a lot with us like what do you think's fueling this craze this whenever we write about it or we do videos about it it gets millions of views and um uh, our articles have had like we did an article a while ago and i think in one week it pulled in 1.5 million unique 
um, views. Wow. What, what do you think is fueling the rise rise of this and the kind of like craze of this keto diet? Is it weight loss? What 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 do you think? Well, everybody has their own reasons, but from my perception from what I've read, it's, it seems to be uh, weight loss is, is usually the number one factor for most people trying a crazed diet. Um, I think with the ketogenic diet, there's a lot of different factors as to why it might be initially beneficial, but potentially harmful long term. And um, one of the reasons why some people, again, I like to analyze why it is that people feel better, because I, I don't like to tell people that they're wrong, because people have their own experience and their own their own um, perceptions based on what they've what they've uh, been exposed to and many people try the ketogenic diet because they've heard about its benefits they may initially feel better and then many of them give it up because they've they've realized that it's not actually great for long-term health and they're starting to feel worse again but I think there is there is some science behind why initially it helps people um, feel well because it, it it activates a pgc1 alpha pathway which is a, a pathway known to improve mitochondrial function so the mitochondria are these little energy sources inside our cells people call them the powerhouse of the cell and you know they are actually derived from bacteria originally so you know you said how you think we're more bacteria than human that's interesting because i think the, the fusion the fusion of you know um sort of the the, the cell with the uh, the uh, the mitochondria is actually the way that we've actually been able to create um multicellular organisms so yes we are very much bacteria within us as well and these these mitochondria they they um it's, what's important for their function is that they need to be able to eat up old mitochondria and replicate to create new ones and that boosts our energy and there's a certain pathway that the ketogenic diet activates which boosts mitochondrial function it helps it to replicate more easily and it helps it to get rid of damaged mitochondria and this pathway is activated by short-term ketogenic diets. It's also activated by intermittent fasting. It's also activated by um, quercetin from, from plants. It's also activated by uh, cold plunges. It's also activated by turmeric or cur curcumin, which is the compound in turmeric, which is so anti-inflammatory. It's also activated by resveratrol, which is found in you know, um, fruits, berries. Uh, so that there's, there's loads of different ways that you can activate this this regenerative pathway and um, and so in terms of looking at the overall picture sort of taking a step back and understanding overall health it makes much more sense to me that that we should optimize your plants minimize your animal products and um and activate this pathway through other mechanisms like fruits vegetables and if you are of a mind to intermittent fasting so speaking of um, fasting, obviously, that, that's a lot of people are exploring this and exploring new ways of kind of um, using medicine and using the body to kind of improve and uh, transform personal health. What do you think is kind of going to be the future of medicine when it comes to these different practices and different me like personalized medicine? Where, where, where do you see the future of medicine going? I, I think that... In our culture now, we're, we're, we're heading towards a bit of a crisis. Um, we have chronic diseases like never before. Um, the the current medical care model has to has to change because we just cannot deal with the amount of inflammation and chronic disease that we're dealing with at the moment and in the future. If you look at future predictions of things like obesity, diabetes, Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease, autism rates, you know, we are we are we are facing a bit of a crisis, and the medical system has to change. How that changes is a really esoteric question. I think 
in terms of general population health, there has to be there has to be a a governmental, a p- political, uh, a policy wide change. I think we need to emphasise more regenerative agriculture so that we can get more nutrients from our soil and our fruits and our vegetables. I think we need to on a population level um get back to connecting with each other and and how we do that again is is a is a difficult question but i think this is not just a medical model change it's a societal change i think we all suffer um in a lot of ways because of not just what we eat but what we surround ourselves with in terms of um our um our friendships or lack thereof um our relationships or lack thereof so loneliness as i mentioned before i think it would be great if we could if we could pair up um, residential and elderly care homes with schools um, or potentially with universities or university accommodation paired up with residential accommodation so you're getting more generations mixing with each other um, general lifestyle changes making sure that we um, find ways to help people to to get more sleep and more productivity more exercise i mean these are all policy changes in a sense but on an individual level um, I think we have to we have to emphasize preventative medicine is the only way forward really and so yeah in communities I think teaching GPs teaching schools um, teaching children about the importance of nutrition and about the importance of emotional health and well-being um, and, and connecting with others um, and getting outside in nature um, these are all you know, crucial <laughs> but how to, how to yeah. I'm not I'm not sure <laughs> my friend K- Kip calls it vitamin N vitamin nature <laughs> like yeah a good dose of vitamin N every week and it's essential to to good health um before before we end I always like to ask my guests this question so have you heard of that desert island you know the vegan desert island where there's a pig Oh, yes, I have heard of this. (laughs) So so if you're on the desert island, obviously you're vegan. You're not going to eat the pig. The pig's your friend. If I could give you uh, a book, a music album, and one vegan dish, what would you choose? You're stuck on this island. (laughs) This is an awesome question. Oh, okay. Um, Book. Book. I would choose The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. Michael A. Singer. Wonderful. It is a treasure trove of wisdom and if you're on a desert island (laughs) you're going to want to get to know yourself and free yourself from physical shackles so I think I'd want to transcend into um, another kind of level of um, of understanding so yeah that would that would take up a little bit of time on the desert island reading that Um, album music hmm I love um all sorts of genres, so it would be hard to pick just one. But I would go with probably mm, something by maybe a compilation CD with Stevie Wonder, Michael Jackson, Alicia Keys, Bruno Mars, um, a little bit of classical and a little bit of um, spa music, depending on my mood. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what was the last thing? A, a dish. Vegan dish. What mm. would vegan dish would you eat for the rest of your time on this island? Um, yes, I think I would go for, 
uh, I'd go for a super healthy kind of Buddha bowl where you've got like brown rice and you've got avocados and you've got nuts, you've got seeds, you've got beans. That way I deal with all my nutritional requirements without having to think about searching for <laughs> foliage. Good choice. Good choice. That's my personal <laughs> choice. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Dr. Gemma Newman, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, I really enjoyed having you on the podcast and I can't wait to do a follow-up because it's you know the, the the knowledge and wisdom that you have to have as a doctor is really infinite there's just so much changing and i really look forward to having you on again soon oh it would be an absolute pleasure i really appreciate it and i think that the work you do is totally transformational and um yeah keep doing what you do it's it's amazing thank you thanks for joining us everyone i've been your host robbie Lockie, and this is the pbn podcast we'll be back next week with more health wellness fitness fashion and everything in between